I'm Hannah. I'm Sheena. And I'm Lori. And this is Cemetery Row. Woohoo! We didn't need three takes on the intro. I know. <laughs> I know. I just I tried not to think about it this time and just let it <laughs> just let it happen. Yeah. Just be your usual great self, Lou. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, um, hi, ladies, and hi, hi. listeners. Um, we hope y'all are doing well. It is December. I hope you are celebrating whatever holiday you choose to celebrate, or I hope you are avoiding any holiday you don't want to celebrate and that you you don't hear any holiday songs you don't want to hear. I hope you're just living your best life. We always hope. Absolutely. <laughs> um, speaking of that, I have a few rants to go on quickly before we get started. Um, they're not all rants, um, but they sort of are. And, and don't, that's not your cue to skip ahead. Skippers. <laughs> Some of this is very important. Some of this is just information. Everything we say is important, including Listen. that one episode where we went on like a 20 minute discussion of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> we did. I don't remember that. I can't but remember, but yeah, we definitely had a, a treatise on ice cream. <laughs> well, Hey, Okay. Speaking of episodes we don't remember, I'll get the least interesting, I guess, or least pressing part of this over with. Um, I was just telling Lori, I read the book Goat Castle about the Goat Castle murder case that she covered. And we were all like, what episode did she cover that in? (laughs) So I had to look back into our notes and she covered the um, Goat Castle murder, which took place in Mississippi. Um, She covered that in our random spookies episode from April of this year so if you want to hear more about that entire murder case which is very interesting and Lori did a great job covering it i highly recommend that episode and then if you want to read the book i enjoyed it um it will infuriate you because obviously there's a lot of talk about racial relations in the state and how one of the suspects was treated um but it's a really it's a good episode it's a good episode it's a good book i i borrowed it saved it whatever on script it may be on other things but I, that's where I got it um so I guess for more serious updates or things to discuss and we'll go through these pretty quickly before we get to our topic um first of all I wanted to just shout out and give love to any of our Jewish listeners who are listening absolutely um, I'm really tired of Nazis Yep. Poking their heads up and being hateful. And so just as a just general sentiment, please know that we um, treasure our Jewish listeners and Jewish folks in general. I'm not here for hate. If you hate people for any reason, go kick rocks, please. That's a nice. We support punching Nazis. Always. In the the dick. Not just punching Nazis, but punching the dick or the vagina or whatever they have going on. Whatever they have, (laughs) knock them right in it. I am absolutely 100% behind punching Nazis. Um, My current boss is uh, an old Jewish man. I have several Jewish coworkers. They're all phenomenal lovely human beings who if anyone tries to mess with them i will curb stomp them um bring it on the heathens can fight so (laughs) and it's just you know it's a tale as old as time it's like i was listening literally to the last podcasts um black plague episodes and they found a way to blame it on jews and i'm like it's a it's a 
plea, you fucking shit-covered maniacs. Yep. I just, I'm really, really tired of people that I care about having hate directed at them for absolutely no reason. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. So, um, please find some love in your heart for your fellow man, unless they're a Nazi. (laughs) Um, And speaking of things that are also infuriating, but I wanted to give um, our listeners an update in case they have been waiting for news on this. We have been talking about throughout this year, the murder of an Ole Miss student named Jay Lee. Um, He was murdered over the summer. He first, it was a missing persons case. Then they arrested someone um, and said that he, that Jay was murdered. They've never found Jay's body. And just this week, uh, the, man that they accused of his murder was released on bond i don't love that news but he has to wear an ankle monitor and has to turn in his passport so i'm hoping it's something it's something i know um there is a really good instagram account and maybe on other platforms too but i know for sure it's on insta justice for jay lee and um they are planning a rally for him actually the morning that this episode comes out so you know it's not like folks can probably hear this and then go down to it but um that's a good way to stay on top of the case and what's going on so if you want to follow that and then speaking of case updates by the time you hear this you will know the identity of the boy in the box i'm like i'm i'm ready i'm ready yes um i don't think we've ever covered this on the show did we ever cover the boy on the box we've talked about it but we haven't like straight up covered it right right i don't Um, think we wanted to be traumatized that much right it's a really upsetting case about a very young boy who was found murdered in a box and there was evidence that he had been abused long before his murder um and this was in the 50s and they have just now uh discovered his identity and they're going to release all this information tomorrow but we're not a bastionette box from jc penny that is like Mm -hmm. the like i'm just like how he was found of all things and so this sweet baby never got i mean obviously the people who worked the case took care of him and they they got him a proper burial with a headstone but i'm very excited for this baby to finally have a name and have a a proper headstone with his absolutely So um, if you have not heard of that case, I encourage you to look it up because it is yes, interesting. It is an internet and classic. It really is. Yeah. And um, it's just a fascinating story that I'm glad we have the science to find out his name. Absolutely. So. All right. Well, to get started on this week's episode, our incredible Hannah is going to kick us off because this week's topic is funeral folks, people in the funeral industry. Um, I'm not sure what these ladies are going to talk about. So this is, I'm very excited for these. Yay. Yes. Mm. Because since we started this podcast, I wanted to cover this guy. So I'm so excited. Yay. All right. Garen. We're going to start with a quote. Show me the manner in which a nation cares for its dead, and I will measure with mathematical exactness the tender mercies of its people, their respect for the laws of the land, and their loyalty to high ideals. And that was William Gladstone, who was a prime minister for the United Kingdom. Interesting. Hmm. This quote appears on the website of Graham Putnam and Mahoney's Funeral Parlor, 
and Worcester. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, mass holes, and I'm very sorry. Don't they uh, ca- pronounce it Worcester? It's something like that. <laughs> Worcester. I just know that um, that song that has been famous on TikTok lately that's like, I'm mean because I grew up in New England. <laughs> so come at me, mass holes. I'm doing my best here. Let me see you pronounce Gaucher, okay? Yes. Oh, yeah. Goatier. Yes. <laughs> Um, so Graham Putnam Mahoney's funeral parlor and that word, Massachusetts, (laughs) Peter Stefan had helmed the funeral home since he purchased the property in 1975. Peter got his embalming license in 1966, but before he took on the business full time, he toured as a professional saxophone player and played with quote, some pretty big names, though he would never tell who, as he doesn't want to come off as bragging. Immediately, I love this story already. He's you guys are going to love him so much by the end of this. Immediately, he determined that he would never turn away people who couldn't pay, and focused on serving the cities underserved, including poor people and immigrants. God must have loved the poor because he made so many of them. Peter would say. In his time at Graham, Putnam, and Mahoney, he didn't shy away from difficult and often detrimental choices inherent in handling the bodies and final arrangements of sometimes pariahs. Peter was known in his community as the caretaker of those who have no alternatives. Peter entered the spotlight when his funeral home took care of the body of one of the Boston bombers. Oh, mm-hmm. one I of the brothers say, got arrested and the, the other, other brother died. got ripped to shreds by the police. I've yes. heard of this guy. I don't know much else about yeah. him, but I, yes. I know I've heard something about strap him. in because he's my favorite person in the world. Awesome. <laughs> Here for it. Several local funeral homes passed on the body, afraid that protesters would harm their businesses, which is a legitimate fear. Yeah. Peter took the man's body, patched his remains together as best as possible, and prepared him for burial. Peter says, when I saw him on TV, I was sure that I'd be called to do it, adding that he knew the Muslim community well, and they know me, and I know the customs. Skipping down on a police escort for fear of drawing too much attention, he coordinated with the other funeral home, telling them to take their nameplates off their van and drive the body in the middle of the night to a parking lot where he was waiting. And made sure that they hadn't been tailed. As the man's uncle told reporters at the time, he has no other place to be buried. There's no other place that would accept his body. It was next to impossible to find a cemetery to inter the then 26-year-old Chechen terrorist's body until an interfaith group stepped in and interred him in a Muslim cemetery in Virginia. Him and his brother were um, Chechen Muslims. Mm -hmm. Uh, Peter would take the money from the burial and put it into a fund for community members who couldn't afford their prescriptions. He didn't want anyone to think that he was making money off of this particular case. When asked if he would have changed anything about how he handled the situation, Peter said, absolutely not. This is what you do. I get calls here. I bury various groups of people. It's not really an ethnic business. It's a non-sectarian business. I'm bound to get anything from vampires to Satan worshipers, you name it. (laughs) They come in. The thing is, the job here is we bury the dead. I can't separate the sins from the sinners. And if you called me and said, my uncle Freddie died, but he was a murderer. And I said, well, I don't bury murderers. 
And again, Uncle Freddie was a bank robber. And I said, well, I don't bury bank robbers. Or Uncle Freddie was an alcoholic. He was drunk driving when he was killed. Well, I don't bury alcoholics. Well, then who the hell do you bury? (laughs) That's true. Peter's unwavering belief that everyone deserves a dignified final rest has been a guiding principle throughout his entire career. Soon after he began running his funeral home, which he purchased in 1975, the AIDS epidemic began and funeral directors had very little information at the onset about how to safely handle the bodies of the AIDS casualties. Many directors would charge families for entirely new equipment after preparing such a body. You're put a guy. (laughs) Don't go too in depth. (laughs) (laughs) Peter stepped in and would transport and prepare bodies from across New England. Peter would work with families who could not afford to pay for their loved one's final arrangements, much to his own financial detriment. In order to keep the doors open and the lights on, he had to do at least one funeral a day. That is a lot of fucking funerals. Yeah, it is. Well into the 1990s, Peter kept up playing the saxophone in nightclubs to bridge the gap between what his community could afford and what would keep the business in operation. Bless him. Yup. Finally, his reputation as an honest man who would bury anyone kept him plenty busy. We had gangster funerals. We bury traitors. We bury mass murderers. In other words, we turned down nobody. But like many in the death industry, Peter had a great sense of humor. Shortly before his death, he worked with two writers to tell his story in the book, Mumblings of a Mortician. World-renowned funeral director Peter Stefan unravels pieces of his mind by Frank Quaglia and Arthur Sosnovich. I bought this on Kindle. Um, it's self-published by these two gentlemen, so definitely give it a look. It's just really short, like little snippets of little stories that he's told, and he's hysterical. In it, he recounts many humorous encounters, including a nudist wake. Ooh, <laughs> nice. A group of nudists wished to be nude during the wake of a friend. Peter agreed with the stipulation that the doors must be remain locked and that he and his staff would remain in their offices upstairs. <laughs> During the wake, a c- cacophony of car, st- car horns started blaring outside the funeral home. Apparently, two of the attendees stepped out for a smoke in the nude. I actually admired the smokers, he said. They could have taught Zen masters a thing or two about tranquility and ultimate transcendental meditation, he said. Then I heard sirens in the distance, and I was expecting a knock on the door from the police who would be arriving momentarily. They did. I stepped outside and had a humorous conversation with two officers. They were gone in 20 minutes. No problems arose as a result of naked night at Graham's. He recounted the tale of a tall, bald man he called Harry, not his real name, who brought in his funeral outfit pre-need. Hot pink lingerie, fake nails, a string of pearls, and a nameplate necklace emblazoned with sweetie. I love it. What a way to go. He was not out to his family. Oh, bless The family, to no one's surprise, was displeased. Uh, one even tried to swing on poor Peter. Oh no! It it that reminds me of that Golden Girls episode where Dorothy's brother dies and he is buried wearing his teddy. 
because he was a cross dresser. <laughs> I and, love that. And they were Sophia and then were like, why'd you have to prepare him in his teddy? And his wife was like, that's what he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because this man had brought in his stuff and he's like, this is what I want. And they were like, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You can have that. Yep. We got you, boo. And his family was pretty mad. <laughs> well, the family can get over it. Those Exactly. Another time, an employee accidentally locked themselves in the back of the hearse. When asked why he didn't left him, let himself out, exasperated, he said, there's no handle on the inside. No, there's not. <laughs> Life gold, y'all. Can I please get locked inside the hearse? Peter also delighted in giving odd made-up names to the Mater D at restaurants while waiting for a table so that the Mater D would actually have to say, Guido Vasilino <laughs> or Anon Amos. Oh my God. I love Peter. That's cute. Peter, alas, did pass away at the age of 85 on March 21st of this year. And Aww. his passing was recognized and mourned by many within the community he faithfully served for decades. Um, do not know where he was buried, and he did not have much of an obituary, but he was very, very loved in his community. And, you know, he did the job that he did his job. He did exactly yeah. what he signed up to do and did it faithfully and without, you know, I mean, how many people and he knew it was like when he took um, the one, you know, the Boston bombers body Sarnayev or whatever. Yeah, he um, they were protesters like outside of his funeral home. And he's like, I understand that they're angry and I understand that they're upset, but we bury our debt. This is what yeah. we do. Well, I mean, if you were to do anything else with his body, there would also be protesters. If you were to mm -hmm. burn it in the street, there would be protesters. If you were to right. not accept it and just have his body just lay out there and rot, people would protest. I mean, somebody's got to do it. Right. Um, and it's like at the quote at the very beginning is, yeah, how exact are you when it comes to your loyalty to your high ideals? You don't get yeah. to throw away this idea of who we are that we're not. Yeah, I hate the term savages, but that we're not, you know, barbarians and horrible yeah. people just because we're upset about something that the person did. And did the people have the right to be upset? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Does that mean we throw away our ideals because of it? No, it doesn't. Well, you can still have some class and be mad, too. Exactly. And so I think that that was such a powerful thing for him is, you know, for him to say, look, no, absolutely. You guys are upset. But this is what we do. We take care of our dead and we give them a proper rest. Like, that's what yeah. we do. And, you know, I've noticed, too, um, because a lot of times I think we rely on something like find a grave to find someone's grave. But if it is, I hate to say a fresh one. That's how I think of people who are <laughs> right. Dead. I call them a fresh one. Um, if we have a fresh one, uh, I know find a grave usually will not publish their um gravesite for like three months to give the family yeah. sort of some space to time play. yeah um and then after a while it's sort of i mean it's up to the family if they want to go in and update it or whoever that cemetery's historian is who wants to go to town on find a grave yeah um, but and yeah, the authors I mean, yeah some the, people just don't ever update it so you just don't know exactly and the authors yeah. of the the book that he worked on you know that worked with him on it 
they said like he was very he didn't talk about his personal life like they knew he had kids they knew he had a wife but he just didn't talk about that and with his line of work and as much hate as he got you know i could see why he'd be very like protective of his family so yeah and his final resting place he may right that known exactly so he was absolutely so he's definitely a good dude very excited because i knew about like i said the boston bomber stuff and i knew about you know he had really taking care of like the poor and just people who didn't um but there's a whole other side to him with just being goofy and silly and just fun that was he sounds like a sweetheart yeah he sat on the boards of a lot of different like charitable organizations in his group like veteran societies and homeless shelters and then like i said he also helped create that fund for people who couldn't afford their afford their prescriptions so it's like and you know the money that he got from preparing that bomber's body he put into that so something good you know yeah did come out of that so big peter stefan fan Mm -hmm. yeah and you know that's a big thing that i'm a big proponent of is it shouldn't put you in debt to bury your loved one absolutely Um, if if you can pre-need by all means, please go ahead and purchase your stuff because it makes things so much easier for your family members who are left shattered, you know? Yeah. But a lot of people can't or they don't want to. Um, so I don't think you should have to go take out loans to bury somebody. We've, we've done that because, yeah. you know, we don't have that kind of money laying around. And right. I would love if you are interested in the death care industry, please watch Caitlin Doty's um, ask a mortician series on youtube because she breaks down the funeral industry in a beautiful way and tells you exactly what you need and what you don't need and trust me right you don't need a vault and you don't need that seal on that casket well, i literally and- said no to both when we were planning my aunt's funeral because i'm like no caitlin right. said we don't need it well and the, like to compare like two different so my grandmother even though she passed away suddenly we knew very much what she wanted she was very yeah this is what I want. Um, and she had life insurance to cover that. My brother also passed away suddenly, but he was 40 years old and had no insurance. We had absolutely nothing. So we were, you know, we went to the funeral home and we're like, (laughs) what do we need to do? (laughs) You know, all of us are pulling out our credit cards and we're just like, let's figure this out, you know? And so, like, I paid for his urn. My, you know, my parents were able to cover his cremation. And so, you know, we just, and bless the funeral home in um, Slidell. I can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head. But they were absolute saints about the whole thing. And, I mean, that's the thing is, like, yeah, you know, my grandmother, like, she didn't have anything concrete planned. But we knew. We're like, okay, this, yeah. these are the things that she wants. Um, and fortunately we had the money to take care of it. And then when my brother passed, it was like, ah, shit, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. let's figure this the fuck out, you know? Yeah. And, and I think there are a lot of, it's hard to find locally owned funeral homes anymore. A lot of yeah. them have been bought up by huge corporations. But oh, I yeah. think if you can find the locally owned ones, 
that are family based, a lot of times they will work with you. They understand, you know? Yeah. My best friend in, um, well, through middle school and high school, her aunt uh, worked at the the big funeral home in town. We had one because we were a tiny, tiny town. Yeah. Um, and we actually went to school with his kids. Um, Hi, Mr. Weston. You're not listening to this. Um, <laughs> or he's our number one fan. <laughs> oh, he could be. I don't know. Um, but he like I had a, a young cousin who was stillborn and he took he took care of them and he told the family, don't worry about it. They've yep. already been through enough. Yeah. You know, and so and because he was a small town, you know, he was the small town mortician, basically. So everybody who died Mr. Weston touch, you know, that yeah. was just part of the deal. Yeah. There's, um, I started to cover for this episode and I did not, um, Jessica Midford who wrote the American way of death, um, years ago and exposed the funeral home industry. Um, and so that book is, I just think it, it, incredible. And I think everyone should read it before they decide to do anything with themselves, especially being embalmed. Cause she walks you through that process and it is terrifying. Anyway, I just, I, I love it when you can find someone who is going to shoot you straight about what funerals are and what things cost and all that. It's heavy, but anyway, yeah, I just, yeah. Yeah. So I'm that rambling. is Peter Stefan. Good job, Hannah. You're welcome. All right, Lou Who. All right, y'all. I'm going to try to do my best. I am in a mood today. You know, Uh-oh. you ever getting those just you're always. Not, yeah. Yep. I'm just on the struggle bus today. I've kind of been in a funk. So we're going to get going. In June of 1981, the CDC published an article detailing a rare lung infection seen in five young gay men in California. Oh, boy. Yeah. All five men died. The same day the article was published, a dermatologist in New York contacted the CDC to report what was then believed to be an outbreak of what was then thought to be a rare cancer called Kaposi sarcoma that had been found in 41 gay men in California and New York. Now, traditionally, Kaposi sarcoma is only seen in older men and it's rarely fatal, But for some reason, this particular form of the disease was extremely deadly and most often found in men who were younger and had previously had no health issues. Uh, By the end of 1981, 337 total cases were reported and 130 of those were already dead. Wow. Damn. Within eight years, the number of reported cases in the United States rose to 100,000. Yeesh. So as I'm sure you have surmised, this outbreak of what was first referred to as, quote, unquote, gay cancer. (laughs) Grid. Uh, Grid. Was the first appearance of the HIV AIDS virus. We now know that the particular form of Kaposi sarcoma these men were experiencing was related to their HIV status. At the height of the epidemic, an AIDS patient had a 50% chance of developing tumors associated with this cancer. So they weren't misdiagnosing. They just, the cancer was not the root of their illness. Uh, so as you know, we were talking about in the group chat, we could devote an entire podcast 
to the history of this disease. And I think, and later, we will <laughs> later on yeah. down the road, we're going to talk about some uh, pioneers of the AIDS crisis who, who did a lot of good work. Um, especially I was reading today, there's a really good timeline on HIV.gov um, that talks about the kids, the hemophiliac kids that mm-hmm. contracted the virus and died and how they were uh, banned from attending school because yeah, yeah just Ryan very White sad. And some of the yeah. early cases mm-hmm. are, yeah, so important. I've, some of the clients I've worked with have been HIV causes. And so I know exactly what timeline you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's a very, good it was website. fantastic. Cause I was perusing yeah. it for, for ideas when I decided to do this. Yeah. Um, so there are several, you know, Hannah t- spoke about one just a few minutes ago, but there are several, uh, funeral directors who really stepped up to the plate, um, to support the families and loved ones and, and fellow, AIDS patients, because honestly, during this time period, if you were homosexual and you had AIDS, your family wanted nothing to do with you for the most part. We're not going to, you know, there were, you know, case by case scenarios, but yeah, the majority of men were thrown out by their families. Um, So I'm going to talk about one man in particular who provided assistance to those who had lost their battle. Um, So In the early days of the epidemic, just as Hannah said, many victims of AIDS were unable to obtain burial services. Discrimination was rampant and the funeral industry didn't seem to care if they even considered handling the remains of an AIDS victim. Many funeral homes would jack up the prices to do so, claiming they needed specialized equipment and tools to complete. Or they had to completely redo their equipment. Yep. Yeah, which I get it. It's the early days. I guess they didn't know any better, but it's still just enraging. Yeah, newsflash: they weren't. Uh, it's not a- like they don't already wear a fucking hazmat suit well, to exactly. embalm anyway. It's like you weren't wearing gloves and a face mask, right? Like you didn't already have that. So, in a nineteen seventy article, nineteen eighty seven, excuse me, article <laughs> in the New York Times, Connecticut state health officials disputed funeral homes' claims of the need for overcharging or refusing AIDS victims as being, quote, despicable and overtly discriminative, end Mm -hmm. quote. Uh, Marge Eichler, an epidemiologist with the AIDS program of the State Department of Health Services, said, quote, the AIDS virus is very fragile and does not live long after the person dies. We're not sure exactly how long it lives. However, we know it's probably in the neighborhood of two hours, end quote. Now, this is in 1987. I didn't look up, you know, what the actual number is, but they knew back in the 80s that this virus does not stay alive. Yeah, AIDS doesn't survive very well outside the body. I mean, it is a blood, you know. Yeah, exactly. And and I'll get into this. I I have some more information for you later. That's just going to make your blood boil. Oh, boy. So so that fact didn't really matter to a large number of of funeral directors, not just in Connecticut, but across the nation. They cited the need for these specialized kits that included goggles, masks, gloves, and a gown in order to embalm AIDS victims. Again, they weren't already using that shit. Exactly. exactly. But these kits generally ran around 200 to 25 or 200, 20 to 25 dollars and funeral homes were charging an additional 150 to 500 dollars to provide. Jesus. Duh. So big markup. Okay. Yeah. A little bit. 
here's the the additional news. So what is even more shocking is that funeral directors were not showing the same discriminatory practice towards victims who had died from hepatitis B, which is significantly more contagious than AIDS. Right. Yep. Like, how are they handling syphilis bodies? Yeah. Mm -hmm. In fact, in that same 1987 article, AIDS antibody testing counselor Nancy Riley cited a report from the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration that found 200 healthcare workers a year became infected and died from hepatitis B after treating patients with the disease, and only nine healthcare workers contracted the AIDS virus through contact with the patient's blood or body fluids. Imagine that. Why the stigma? I don't think you need to ask me what that was. (sighs) So... Again, there, there, just as there were funeral directors who were using AIDS as an opportunity to earn a few extra bucks or just refuse services, including this guy in New York, who I initially was looking into because he also provided services for AIDS patients. But then in more recent years, turned out he was like selling body parts on the black <gasps> market. I don't even remember the dude's name. I don't care. But yeah, so I th- I know that case. Okay. Yeah. yeah Carry on. Yeah. So, so. There were people that were providing these services without the ridiculous upcharge. And one of those funeral directors was James Sullivan, the co-owner of the Arthur J. Sullivan and Company Funeral Home in Castro, California, which is essentially San Francisco. Yeah, the Castro District. Right, right. So, again... There's not much about his personal life that we know. What I know I got from his obituary in an article uh, that I'll include in our show notes about his passing. He was born in San Francisco, a third generation San Franciscan on April 21st, 1942. Um, He attended St. Anne's Catholic School and then went on to go to St. Joseph's Seminary, which is basically like the way... I kind of figured out what it was. It's like a community college to prepare you for the big uh, seminary, like, you know, middle school for, for priest. And then there's, (laughs) you know, finishing school. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't think he attended, like, I don't think he went beyond that. He did um, graduate from the university of San Francisco in 1964 and kind of like your guy, Hannah, he was a member of a bunch of giving organizations. I can't I love that. of them, but he yeah. was he was very engaged in his local community. Um, he joined the United States Army Reserve and served for 25 years before retiring as a colonel and chief of staff. Damn. Yes. Yeah. He also graduated from the U.S. Army War College, which I didn't know was a thing. So I had to Google it. I'm assuming they've changed the name of that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I didn't look that far into it, but it basically provided like graduate level courses to senior military officials to kind of prepare them for assignments where they would have to be leaders in. Awesome. um, Finishing school for uh, (laughs) army colonel. Oh no, it is still called the army war college. Oh, well, they might want to, they might want to do a rebrand from that. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, he was all, the co-owner of the Sullivan and Company Funeral Home with his brother, Arthur III. Uh, the funeral home was opened in 1923 by their grandfather, Ar- Arthur Sr., and they took it over from their father, Arthur Jr., in 1970. Okay. 
San Francisco, as I'm sure we all know, was pretty much ground zero for the AIDS epidemic in California. And as a Catholic white straight man, you wouldn't necessarily look at Jim Sullivan and think, yeah, he's totally an ally of the AIDS community. Right. But he was. And there was another guy I was looking at uh, in Chicago, Hannah, that was essentially the same. He was a white Catholic man who provided the same services to AIDS victims in Chicago. Okay. Cool. But Jim Sullivan was, um, unfortunately I could not find any information, um, about his brother, but according to every, every article about him, he had a brother who passed, who was, who was gay and passed away from AIDS complications Mm. in 1985. So not only was he personally, uh, impacted by this disease but it was his brother right right yeah it probably changed his life absolutely um, in some way so the funeral home was a source of comfort and solace for friends and family of AIDS victims during the height of the epidemic and they provided services to those without question um it was like a sanctuary of sorts um so a newsletter that was published by Castro Merchants following Jim's passing wrote quote Sullivan's was among Sullivan was among the first funeral directors in the Bay area to provide its professional care and services to surviving family and friends of those lost in the early days of the AIDS crisis when many others in their profession would not end quote. Mm. So in 2009, he suffered a heart attack and had to undergo triple bypass surgery. Oh goodness. Um, And so he decided to kind of step back a little bit from his, his role at the funeral home and the family sold it to the Duggins Sarah mortuary, which continued to operate it under the Sullivan name until that specific location and site was closed in 2016. Hmm. Um, it was reopened at a different location and Jim worked there um, part-time until his, his death in 2018 at the age of 76. Mm. And I'll, I'll get more into that in a minute, but so this building was, you know, it was open in 1923, uh, a historic landmark, but yeah. so a brief side note, according to a 2015 article in a publication called S fist, which okay there. Uh, the developer was I get it SF ist okay okay yeah 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 no yeah I I I don't so the developer did not plan to tear down the building he was basically just going to gut it and leave the front you know looking the facade yeah Yeah, Yeah. right because it was going to you know there was some historic significance yeah uh to make way for condos and a potential retail space. And if you pull up Google map street view, which I did, and I screenshotted it, which we will include in our socials. I mean, it pretty much looks like they did that. I have a photo that I'm including of what it looked like before and what it looks like now. And there's no marker or anything. They tore Mm. down the sign. It's just a white building and it's a beautiful building and they've got all the condos behind it and whatever, but it, you would never know that this, is the place it was. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I did see in, um, and it may have been that article I mentioned just a minute ago that the Facebook page preserving LGBT historic sites in California nominated the building for historic status. But when I went into the group and searched Sullivan and company funeral home, I couldn't find anything, you know, it yeah. could have right. disappeared. I don't know because, uh, but 
that was cited in an article. Um, so back to Jim, he suffered a heart attack on October 3rd, 2018, two days before he was scheduled to have his leg amputated due to complications from type one diabetes. Aww. Oh, man. So he was buried at the Holy Cross Catholic Cemetery in Colma, California. And, you know, he's got a very lovely headstone. It blows my mind that there is no reference to his love and support of the gay community during their time of crisis. So this is something that I think I may try to focus on in each person's story I do, especially if there's really nothing significant about their final resting place. I mean, this is a man who did so much for the gay community during the height of the tragic epidemic. And you could just walk right past his headstone and have no idea. And I think, uh, Sheena, when you were talking, I can't remember his name, but the giant guy, the wrestler that's buried in Mississippi, it's like, you see that little headstone and you have no no idea idea. who you're walking over, who you, you know, whose headstone you're looking at. And that's why it's important for us to share these stories. And that's why, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we continue to do this because it's, it's not just, Oh, this headstone is neat. I want to learn more about it. It's that too, but but having, knowing the impact some of these people made, and it's just, you know, they didn't want any, they didn't want that on their headstone or. Right. It's It's like they had such an outsized impact and then such a humble, you know, resting place. It's it's not like, and, and it's, you know, my morbid personality, I guess, you know, like that, I can't think of the name of it, but the, the, the graveyard I covered in our cemeteries episode that has the beautifully painted folk art headstones yeah, that yep. have the, the poems cemetery, about, right. Yeah. About the cause of death. You know, it's just, again, we, we don't feature that here where we're, and I'm not, right. I don't mean the cause of death, but just the impact a person has, you know, unless they're a celebrity or, yeah. you know, you don't always see that. So, um, so yeah, I wish there was more about him and any of the other funeral directors. I mean, I saw several that I wanted to, to feature in this story, but there just wasn't any information about him. I couldn't find yeah. anything. And that's, I think, one reason why I like doing my tours at Elmwood is because it's so easy, especially in a big cemetery to just drive past and see a bunch of tombstones and be like okay yeah people but you don't know the stories beneath and it's so fascinating to show someone the simplest little stone and then say yeah but they did this and you're like wait what Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's like absolutely i I always that's what i love about cemeteries is that there are these stories that need to be unearthed not literally and (laughs) you know i think people don't appreciate them until they know the stories and that's why i wanted to do this podcast yeah i mean that's like but yeah oh yeah i mean that's (laughs) like with the chicago cemetery is like you have the burnhams who obviously you know deserve to have their own damn island in the middle of the cemetery (laughs) and all these other tombs and all this but then you also have just the little stones that's like okay this was actually a pretty cool person who did some really cool shit they just it's like how the oscar meyer does not you know if i were oscar meyer i would have had a hot dog on my bloody tombstone i I would have had the fucking uh, wiener mobile like absolutely size Wienermobile yeah. would be I, my headstone. <laughs> like my casket would have been a Wienermobile replica. 
but he was just <laughs> a simple dude who made deli meat. <laughs> that yeah. was just that's all he was, you yes. know, and his stone is pretty. I mean, it's it's not, you know, because it's old, so it's that really kind of older fashion, but it's 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 not a tomb, it's not an island, it's a stone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope all maybe right. wherever he's buried. Maybe they have tours or something where they can talk about him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure. And send me the Chicago guy's name. Cause yeah, he, I've, it's yeah. written down. Uh, I wrote it down. It's, it's downstairs, but yeah, he was, he was kind of the same. And he like, like your guy, I could not find any burial information he yeah. passed recently, but there was nothing about, you know, where he's right. I'll see if there's something in the local press. Mm-hmm. Cool. I love that. Yeah, Yay. Good job, Luhu. Our stories were connected a little bit. I <laughs> love that when that accidentally dovetails. Yes. yes. Well, and mine um, reminded me of yours, Luhu, um, in that it's a long-term uh, or a, a a a business that's been open for a long time and run by a family. That's uh, the yeah. same kind of story I've got. Well, you've changed since uh, we first we're, we're brainstorming or at, when I asked what y'all were doing, because again, as usual, I never know what I'm going to do. Uh, and so you've changed your topic. So I have no idea what you're about to, to I'm very to drag excited. Us into, all so right. Excited, well, yeah. Um, all right. Y'all picture it. Memphis, <laughs> Tennessee, April 4th, 1968. Ooh. Memphis again. Come on. Sheena. <laughs> that is so on brand for you. <laughs> well, like I said, I started to do mm-hmm. Jessica Mitford, but I was like, I want to shine a light on someone who I don't think has gotten a lot of attention. And I didn't know this. We'll get to more stuff that I did not know. Anyway, I don't have to tell y'all what happened in Memphis on April 4th, 1968. That was the day <laughs> yeah. that no. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated by James Earl Ray at the Lorraine Motel. Um but what happened to Dr. King's body after he was murdered? Oh, uh, before his two funeral services in Atlanta, Georgia, a funeral service took place for him in Memphis at the R.S. Lewis and Sons Funeral Home, a funeral home that recently celebrated over 100 years of service to the Memphis area. Oh. And in addition to Dr. King, this funeral home has carried many prominent Black Memphians and civil rights leaders into the afterlife. So let's talk about this funeral home, which is very historic in Memphis. So the funeral home was opened in 1914 by Robert Stevenson Lewis Sr., who was born on February 21st, 1883. That makes him a Pisces. Yay! <laughs> the original funeral home was located at the corner of Beale and Fourth in downtown Memphis. If you know Memphis well, you know this is just behind the FedEx Forum, uh, down the road from AutoZone Park, within spitting distance of like the New Daisy and places like that. Um, the funeral home does move, obviously, because it would be a little weird to have a funeral home on Bill Street. It would be right very now. Memphis, though. It would be very Memphis, um, it, and they probably should have one there, but um, <laughs> it did eventually move from that location. Anyway, um, Robert Lewis Sr. was married to his wife. I think you pronounced her name Lilla. It's L-I-L-L-A. It may hmm. be Lila. I don't know, but it's very pretty. They had two sons, Robert Jr. and Clarence, and two daughters, Marjorie and Eloise. Now, fun fact about uh, Robert Sr., he was a huge baseball fan. 
Oh. And he actually founded the Memphis Red Sox, which was in the Negro Leagues oh. in 1922, which I thought was really cool. Um, he also financed the construction of Martin Stadium, some, sometimes called Lewis Park, in Memphis for the team to play. And this was the only Black-owned stadium in the country at the time. And because, you know, everywhere was segregated in the 1920s and, well, a lot of other times, um, the opposing teams couldn't stay at the city's whites-only hotels. So they stayed at the funeral home, which I just love, like... <laughs> okay that's kind of cool like i mean i know they had black owned motels but i guess they were like oh let's save some money too and they can just stay at the funeral home and i read somewhere that um baseball stars like willie mays and hank aaron played at the stadium early in their careers which is pretty oh, cool. awesome so robert senior successfully ran the business for decades um it was in 1927 that the business moved from bill and forth to vance avenue which is their main location now and um at some point clarence and robert jr took over the funeral home and robert jr becomes a big part of the story so we're going to talk a little bit about him he was born july 24th 1919 makes him a leo in Ooh. memphis and he, as an adult, became a very prominent businessman and community leader in Memphis. He helped establish T.O. Fuller State Park, which was the first state park open for African-Americans east of the Mississippi. We should also probably do an episode sometime on T.O. Fuller. He looks like a very interesting guy. Um, he also advocated for the city to hire its first black firefighter in 1955, and uh, he was the first black man elected to serve on the five-person licensing committee of the Alcohol Beverage Commission in Memphis. Awesome. He was um, first elected king of the annual Cotton Makers Jubilee, a parade that honored the previously uncelebrated contribution of African Americans to the wildly successful cotton business in the Mid-South. I wonder what their contribution was. Gosh, wonder. <laughs> but yeah, um, he also was active in the Boys Clubs of America and the Porter Leith organization, which um, supports a lot of low income children and families in Memphis. He was also the only minority on that governing board. Awesome. And following his brother's uh, passing, which his brother passed in the 90s, right, Sheena? <laughs> Sheena, you did? Yes, yes, in the 90s. After his brother Clarence passed in the 90s, he established the Clarence E. Lewis Scholarship Award, named after his brother, at Booker T. Washington High School for students that were, you know, smart. <laughs> so um, anyway, let's go back to 1968. So Dr. King had been in Memphis to support the sanitation workers strike. If you have never looked into that, please do. It is a fascinating part of our history. Um, I know you've seen the historical photos of the I am I was, man. I was marches. just about to say you've definitely seen that poster. Yeah. Um, basically the sanitation workers in Memphis, uh, went on strike because they needed better working conditions. I believe two sanitation workers have been killed um, and they demanded better conditions, um, which by the way, this holiday season, please um, send a thank you 
to your sanitation workers. They Absolutely. Unbelievably important to life. Um, I love little kids who are obsessed with the trash man. <laughs> I but love I mean, it so much. You know, seriously, if, if we didn't have sanitation workers, our lives would be chaos, incredibly disgusting, and diseases would run even more rampant than they already do. Anyway, that's a rant. Please tip them, give them a little gift, a little happy. Just please give them a little salute and let them know that their work is appreciated. Anyway, <laughs> so the Lewis Funeral Home had provided Dr. King with a chauffeured limousine to use during his stay while he was in Memphis. And um, the driver, Solomon Jones, an employee who worked at the funeral home, was one of the last people to speak to Dr. King before he was shot. And he also attempted to chase the shooter, even though he didn't catch him. Mm. Um, and actually... Um, Robert Jr. Um, had just met Dr. King like 36 hours before he was murdered. Um, wow. They were in the same bit of crazy Memphis traffic and mm -hmm. um, someone pulled up beside him and was like, hey, do you want to meet Dr. King? He was like, oh, yes. Yeah. And they rolled down the window and like waved at each other, which I thought was cool. Um, anyway, back to the seriousness. After Dr. King was shot, he was taken to the emergency room at St. Joseph's Hospital where he was pronounced dead. And his closest aides contacted Robert Lewis Jr. and asked him to prepare the body for viewing. I, I it never, it never crossed my mind who embalmed Dr. King. I, yeah. I just, and I really didn't know anything other than, oh, well, they sent him to Atlanta for his funerals. Yeah. So you would assume he was embalmed in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it all happened in Memphis at this funeral home. Um, so Robert and his brother Clarence worked all night long embalming him, grooming him, and preparing his body while listening to vinyl records of Dr. King's speeches. Mm. Um, and they they taught like it was a, a difficult process because I can imagine it was not yeah. good. But they, I've seen some pictures of Dr. King's body and it it looks really it looked very good. So I'm like, wow, they they did their job. They know what they're doing. So the next day, there was actually a wake held for Dr. King at the R.S. Lewis and Sons Funeral Home in Memphis, and thousands of mourners lined up to view Dr. King's body and pay their respects. Um, there are some really beautiful stories from the Memphis newspapers about stuff that people did or said when they arrived at his body, and it was just incredible to read. Um, Time magazine mentioned this is a quote from time magazine uh in memphis before it was carried south toward home king's body lay in state at the rs lewis and sons funeral home in an open bronze casket the black suit tidily pressed the wound in the throat now but all invisible mm. many of those who filed past could not control control their tears some kissed king's lips others reverently touched his face a few threw their hands in the air and cried aloud in agony mm. um there was one that i loved a quote that i kind of wish i'd written it down now but they said there was an older um black man who didn't have any toes in his shoes and he stood out there waiting for hours to view his body and he went mm. to him and he said something like we're not gonna let we're not we're gonna win and we're not gonna let them tarnish your memory essentially oh. it, i just was like yes <laughs> like that's what you would want to hear it yes i just thought it was lovely anyway um 
So later that day, police and National Guardsmen escorted the long procession of cars which carried uh, Dr. King's body back to the airport for the flight to Atlanta. And then in Atlanta, there were two more memorial service and services, and Robert Lewis Jr. co-directed those as well. Mm. They had a private ceremony at Ebenezer Baptist where Dr. Right. King and his father were senior pastors and then a public one at Morehouse College which was his alma mater and President Lyndon B. Johnson declared a national day of mourning on April 7th hmm. and Dr. King was initially buried at Southview Cemetery but he was exhumed in 1970 and buried at the plaza between the King Center and Ebenezer and then when his wife Coretta passed she was buried next to him oh. in 2006. The Lewis family refused to be paid for their services to take care of Dr. King. They refused book offers and any other ways they could have profited off of it. Um, I kept seeing interviews where Robert Lewis said, you know, like, you know, just like that. No, like you just don't, you don't do this for that. And he said that uh, Dr. King had already paid him uh, with a lifetime of leadership, which I thought was a beautiful. So sweet. Yeah. Um, he did attend Dr. King's funeral services in Atlanta. As I said, he kind of helped co-direct them and the King family thanked him personally while he was there. Um, and they took care of many other uh, black Memphians, many of them famous, a lot of them not. Um, some of them, which that sort of reminds me, there's a really fascinating Ask a Mortician episode about sort of how and why black and white funeral homes are a thing in america like yeah why they're still segregated it's really fascinating so uh, please look that up there was a really good um tiktok discussion about um african-american funerals versus yes white funerals i've seen that yeah and like having when i worked in jackson county and it was a predominantly african-american group and they're like oh so-and-so's mom passed i was like oh okay so the funeral's on sunday and no they're like no no that's not how that works i was like wait we don't do that like we get them in the ground quick okay (laughs) like (laughs) wait what are y'all doing it's god white people are weird but they're i know um so some of the people that they took care of um were some pretty famous memphians like benjamin hooks who was a civil rights leader an attorney and a minister he was over the naacp from 1977 to 1992 maxine and her husband vasco smith um both of them were civil rights leaders um vasco was a dentist and the first black county commissioner in memphis and then maxine was a incredibly intelligent wonderful academic and civil rights leader um i cleaned her stone in elmwood and i looked into her a little bit she's just a fascinating lady and then judge ordell horton who was a u.s district judge in tennessee so they and as i said if you go look at their um website it you know they have their obits of the people that they're currently working on and it's everyone from major major movers and shakers in memphis to your everyday folks they they seem to welcome everyone um, Robert Lewis Sr. passed away November 18th, 1971. Why did I type 1871? Because <laughs> you're used to it. Yeah. At the age of 88. And his oh, wife. Oh, bless. 
his wife, Lila Lilla, like I said, I hate him. I'm not pronouncing it right. She died on February 15th, 1996 at the age of 104. Damn. This family lives long. Good Clarence, for her. Clarence Lewis died technically the youngest. Uh, he died July 1st, 1992 at the age of 66. And then Robert Lewis Jr. continued to manage the funeral home until his passing on November 21st. 2011 at the age of 92 his wife ruth died on november 28th 2015 at the age of 95 um like i said all of them lived to be in their 90s practically it's just wow. incredible good for them the entire lewis family is buried at elmwood cemetery and Lori, this goes back to what you were saying earlier i have passed by their graves a zillion times and had no idea I yeah wow yeah no they have ridiculous. a yeah a pretty good sized monument with the name lewis on there and then they each have their individual stones but i just did not know so they will officially be added to my tours from here on out because i go by them i love time. it and i'm like i how did i not know this but there's that's the thing there's eighty thousand burials at elmwood right Memphis. i can't know every story but now that i know them i'm adding them to all of my tours because they're fascinating so rs lewis and son's funeral home is still in operation in memphis uh, following Robert Jr.'s passing, the family sold the funeral home to Nelda and Tyrone Burroughs in 2012. And Tyrone sounds a lot like Robert Jr. He is a um, philanthropist and civil rights leader, uh, someone who's really doing a lot of good stuff for the city of Memphis. Uh, the funeral home now has two more locations throughout the Memphis area for a total of three. And Tyrone Burroughs' daughter, Melanie, is now the funeral home's president. And we love a female in funeral leadership. We absolutely. absolutely. I'm all about that. In 2014, the funeral home celebrated its 100th anniversary. Um, it was at the time, and I guess still is, the oldest funeral home still operating in Memphis. In 2014, it was noted that the funeral home had about 20 employees, nine vehicles, and worked an average of 250 to 300 funerals a year. Like, that's a lot. That's, a that's lot. almost daily. Yeah. Yeah. Almost daily. And I can't imagine what it was during COVID. Like, because oh everybody, yeah. everybody was so much busier. Um, but yeah, I don't know if they're still quite that busy, but that's the last numbers I saw was from 2014. Um, also when they celebrated that hundredth anniversary, they, in, um, there was a historical marker installed in front of the business to celebrate. Yes. It, it was turning a hundred, but also the work that they'd done for Dr. King. Oh, wonderful. So I'm going to end with a quote. Y'all know I like to do that. Mm -hmm. Robert Jr. And Ruth's daughter, Sharon shared her thoughts at the historical marker unveiling she said i'm gonna start crying if i have to say it most of the african-american funeral homes have closed over the years it speaks loudly and proudly for us that it's been a hundred years oh i so love that. that that is the rs lewis and sons funeral home in memphis um if you are in the downtown area you you'll drive past it you'll see the historical marker and that is where dr king's first wake was which I, I love that. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, so, I love that. And if you haven't been to the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, you yes. have to go. It is 
just yeah the way they've preserved the Lorraine is absolutely beautiful yeah it really well, is. and I don't remember if this was a part of the tour because it's been so long. I went with uh, a journalism class in college. Uh, Curtis Wilkie, uh, yeah, yeah, took us, and we actually went to the spot, and I'm sure it's a part of the tour, but the spot where his assassin laid in wait, like mm. yeah. saw where he was sitting, yeah, uh, and just yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's disturbing. Yeah, mind blowing uh, what you're able to see there. So I would I mean, it's worth the trip to Memphis just to go to that museum. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I had started to say something at the beginning of, yes, um, he was murdered by uh, James Earl Ray. But, you know, there are a zillion conspiracy theories as to who put him up to it. Blah, blah, right, blah. Right. I didn't want to get into all that. Um, that is its own Yes, probably several episodes worth. And that's, oh, that's a gnarly story. But, but I do recommend again, um, looking up that civil rights, um, the, the sanitation worker strike and also, and this is someone I'd love to cover in the future, but he's got podcasts dedicated to him is Ernest Withers, who is a photographer in Memphis who took those iconic, um, I am a man photos as well as many, many other historical moments in Memphis. Yeah. He is buried at Elmwood. He has a um, monument that is in the shape of a camera. And it says, oh. uh, picture's worth a thousand words. And there is a gallery of his work on Bill Street. So I also recommend going there and yeah. expanding your knowledge base about the civil rights era in Memphis and just awesome people who were from Memphis and did some good it's work. It's not just crime and barbecue. <laughs> There's lots of culture. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, a significant and, portion. But and someone <laughs> just said that Gus's is, is the best fried chicken in the nation. And we I'm have like, a Gus's yes. up here. There's a Do Gus's you? up here. Yes, yes, yeah. I I love Gus's. Mm, I love Gus's. I miss so it. Oh, I miss it. I need to go find Gus's. I'm getting heartburn just thinking about it. But, <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, um. So we are going to next week, our next episode is going to fall around Christmas. And I wanted us to do something easy and fun. Um, and the ladies agreed with me. I yes. Like I run this thing. They, I'm going, <laughs> yeah. I I'm made it sound be... like I said we have to do a grab bag. And the ladies are like, yes, machine. Sorry. <laughs> like, no. Um, because for real, we're all we kind of traveling and yeah. um, like I'm going to go see my parents. And so it's just a lot of, you know, yeah. I could record in my parents' house, but let me just say all four of my nibblings are going to be there <laughs> along with my parents. And I would strangle somebody with my microphone cord. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to do a grab bag episode for next week. Uh, it can be Christmas related. It can be New Year's Eve related. It could be related to nothing at all. Just a story we've wanted to tell. So strap mm -hmm. in. Yes. Um, I'm going to find something suitably gruesome. I'm shocked by that. What? I was, I was a little, I've been a little too love and light these past couple of episodes. That's and I, true. I feel like I need to get, I need to get I... my hands dirty again. I was bound and determined to tell a Memphis story, but now Lori's got me second guessing. <laughs> you can do your Memphis you do your story. Memphis. I'm I think this one I know the best. Don't I... let Lori bully you. <laughs> no, I don't bully. Uh, no. Yeah, no, I've already, I think I already know what I'm going to do. So Yay. it's going to be like 
a page out of Hannah's book. But ooh, <laughs> are we gonna have a really gory Christmas grab bag? It's gonna be dark. I mean, I wanted to do like I'd love to talk about Krampus all day long, but oh, I love Krampus. Like, no, he he's not right for this. But I've got something I, else in mind. I have a funny Krampus story that I will tell y'all off mic because I don't want. Uh, people from my hometown hollering at me. Um, so it's related to Krampus. Oh, I'll say it. No one from Tupelo listens to this. Apparently, there was a float in the Tupelo Christmas Parade this year that featured Krampus. And all of the mommies of little ones have started freaking out because, God oh my forbid, all hell broke loose, which I'm like, <laughs> don't they have a drag God show to forbid. protest? Right. Well, not in Tupelo, you don't. Trust me. Oh, I mean, if, if there are drag shows in Tupelo, I'd be shocked. But they're they are in Oxford. But that's not an invitation for you want to go do that. In don't Oxford, or anywhere. Do that, sweet mother of Christ. Anywhere of Oxford, you <laughs> bastards. Just, it just cracks me up that all these people are upset that their little ones got scared. And no offense to moms, but there's sometimes I'm like, y'all really? This is when you sit them down and say, no, this is a it's folklore, and he's funny, and you try to kind of lighten it a little parent your child dang a it fat man breaking into your house isn't terrifying eating Thank your food you. drinking your milk y'all know that episode of oh god of supernatural where the little girl is like so you're telling me this person's gonna break into my house and steal my tooth i don't think so my mom has always been like that's you as a kid like the idea of Santa and Tooth Fairy and all this is kind of creepy. Uh, it have is. you ever seen Darkness Falls? I mean, they made a whole horror movie about the Tooth Fairy. Yeah. So. Well, and that's like, there's a funny joke about like, and some of the like, this is Fay propaganda groups that I'm in on like Facebook. <laughs> and they're talking about like the elf on the shelf. And they're like, why are you teaching your children to be okay with the Fay watching, you know, monitoring their behavior? Big and I'm brother. like, you're already teaching them to sell their bones to the Fay with the tooth fairy. Yes. It's like, get it under control. <laughs> Yeah, yes. that's one thing we won't do. As Sawyer's asked me if we can get an elf on the shelf, and I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not, not getting into that. I've no. got enough on my plate. I have like friends and coworkers who've done it, and it is like a full time job. Yes, it's no. very stressful. No, and I mean, it would be cute to me if the the thing is not telling on you. But I don't like that. It's I don't a, like that whole idea of it. No, ab- no supernatural surveillance. Absolutely no, not. No, absolutely no. no. Well, if you have thoughts on supernatural surveillance <laughs> or um, how this episode has gone, or it's if gonna you're going to be the name of my mom, punk band, <laughs> if you're a two-play mom who is angry at me for making fun of you for being upset, dial one nine hundred. Eat shit and die. Yes. Uh, that but also Luhu, where can they find us on social media we are on facebook instagram and twitter for now at cemetery row pod and you can also email us at cemetery row pod at gmail.com and i am checking it regularly <laughs> and thank you to everyone who sends us very sweet facebook messages we yes, do yeah. appreciate it it like we see them and we jump in the group chat we're like guys yeah <laughs> it's really cool yeah but yeah, so um, I hope y'all, everyone out there is having a good time this December, and we will have an even better time together next week. Woohoo! Yay! Woo! Bye! Bye! Bye.